Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me. And you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The vehicle turns onto its side. She clambers out and the beach ball size object is just hovering above her. It's like waiting for it to get out of the vehicle. She gets out. She then picks up her weapon, charges several rounds at it, which then makes the UFO or the object go away at speed. Chris Lado, welcome to Lado Files. That was Gary Hesseltine. In February 2023, he released Non-Human, the Rendlesham Forest Incidents, 42 Years of Denial, following a five-year reinvestigation of the famous Rendlesham Forest incident that took place in late December 1980 in Suffolk, England. So the book is now released and available on Amazon. Very excited today to have Gary on the show. Thank you for Um, being here. uh, Thanks, Chris, for inviting me on. Excellent. How was it writing a a book like this? Well, even though I I do my own PDF UFO Truth magazine, which I've now done since retirement from the police for 10 years, it's totally a different medium writing a book. And of course, the Rendlesham Forest case is no simple case to tell. I'd been involved in Rendlesham research since uh, December of 2007, when I was invited by the UFO Hunters TV program to get involved in one of their episodes on, on the case. And that's where I met Colonel Charles Holt for the first time. So I've been doing Rendlesham research for a long time. I thought I knew the case well, as well as most people, but five, six years ago, I decided to do a deep dive reinvestigation as part of a documentary, hopefully going to come out by the end of the year called Capel Green. I'd been asked to be the lead researcher and I thought, well, if I'm going to do this, I best be accurate. So I thought, well, I'll go back to day one after the incident and then see what I could find. Uh, And amazingly, I found lots of old UFO publications, PDFs, little magazines, and found some very early interviews that I think are very relevant to the case. I then re-interviewed a lot of military witnesses, and with a couple of them, I was able to use an enhanced technique to try to retrieve more memories. And that worked, seemingly worked. It's not designed to be used many decades later, but... The premise was that if you had experienced something really profound, that those memories are actually still there. It's a question of whether you can trigger through a memory tools, you know, release that information. And and I was able to get that a couple of times. It, wow. it worked well on a couple of occasions, unexpectedly, but it worked well. Because the things are so seared into the memory, 
it's just a question of can you trigger a release mechanism uh, and it worked a couple of times and they're key interviews that are in the book uh, the Reynolds and Forest case for me is the most complicated UFO case and there are thousands and thousands hundreds of thousands of cases from around the world but rarely do you have a series of multiple events and this is what Reynolds is all about rarely do you have literally hundreds of moving parts you know literally hundreds of military personnel on various shifts all playing a part and there's still a lot of information that I'm, I'm convinced is still there to be retrieved all these decades later there is also a lot of politics involved in the Rendlesham case because I think it was such a good case that the American government stroke military US Air Force the British government stroke Ministry of Defense did their damnedest to quell any interest in the case to actually put out disinformation to to actually dumb it down and I, and I believe that the media in the UK were complicit in allowing that to happen especially when we talk about the lighthouse being an explanation for all the different incidents you know which was always ludicrous from the start and my reinvestigation proves that it was purely a media invention there was no substance to it it was denied by all the personnel at the start including colonel holt or lieutenant colonel holt at the time it was never that but it was pushed by the media and i think that it was done to downplay the significance of the number of events that take taken place over several days. So I think that's why it's so complicated. And it was actually my then wife, second wife, who suggested, why don't you write a book because you've got that much material. And I realized that lots of the material would never get into a documentary just to time constraints. So I thought, okay, I'll do it. And not realizing that it would take me three years to write. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and, yeah. And, and actually one of the, the hardest things was deciding on its format. And that took me about six months to work out the best way to get my head around telling the complex information. Um, and I think in the end, I, I resorted back to like a, a cold case review, looking it through evidentially as a former detective and, and literally taking personality out of it. Uh, I know a lot of the people involved, met them, several of them. So I took that all out and I just concentrated on what was the fact, interviews, transcriptions of TV appearances, radio appearances, old documents, transcribed them all and, and revealed a hell of a lot of new information that I wasn't aware of, which is all added to the book with the very flattering reviews I've had from researchers around the world. I think I must have done something right. So fingers crossed that uh, people will keep saying that. So first is, why is it called non-human? Because in the end, in the, the one of the concluding chapters is, is after that three years of writing and five years of research, I concluded that there were 18, if you actually look at the back of the book in that chapter, there's 18 incidents listed. Subsequently, following the release of the book, one of those, it was actually a wrong date. So that's come out. So we're looking at 17 different timed events. Now, most people, and I think in America, are under the illusion that it's just a couple of nights, a couple of sightings. It's not. And when I broke it down like a detective should do, 
different timed events where there were time gaps. And, and, and the reason that the mentality of, of, of doing it this way is like, if I see you run out of a house, you're a burglar running out of a house, and I'm the police officer chasing you, and I'm seeing you from a distance, I see a figure running out the house, I'm giving chase, I'm on the radio, blah. If I lose you for an hour in a housing estate, and then I see somebody else running, can I be certain that that is the same person I saw? And the answer is no. And there's a break in the time, uh, there's a timed gap. So when you see somebody who's another suspect or a potential suspect, that then becomes another sighting event, which you then track until you either lose it again or somebody's in custody. So that's the principle. And in the conclusion of the book, I now highlight 17 different timed events the first one beginning actually on the 23rd of December, which nobody had ever heard about, but comes out in the book. And the last one probably on the night of the 28th, 29th. So we're looking at a five, six day period. And prior to that, we were looking at a consecutive three night period. So there's a lot of new information in there, which we can talk about uh, as and when and if you bring that up. I'm sure you've explained this to many people. What do you say to them who have never heard of Rendlesham Forest, you know, or people that haven't looked into it? Rendlesham Forest is arguably the best UFO case in history. And what I mean by that is that there are so many witnesses, the majority of which were US Air Force security police officers, but there are others. There were civilians in and around the base that saw things that lived nearby. There were also different trades people that saw things as well so if you if you think about it it's a, a twin base complex RAF Woodbridge RAF Bentwaters that are maybe separated by three miles of a forest and in the middle in simplified terms in the middle is Reynoldsham Forest so you've basically got two US bases leased from the Royal Air Force one of them at RAF Bentwaters housed nuclear weapons in the book, I highlight documents that prove that there were nuclear weapons there. But one of the other things that's, I think, key to the whole story is why UFOs turn up. Now, we're led to believe that UFOs only turn up in late December, but it's not true. There were significant, what I would call precursor cases, three uh, throughout 1980 in the build-up in February July and November to the late December events. But uh, one of the cases that was originally, and the image that's on your screen now, relates to an incident that happened on the 26th of December. It turns out 1979, a full year, but at the same time. So that we can talk about that later on. It's, it's an exceptional case. A new military witness who was not a security police officer. He was a crew chief. He repaired aircraft and he was working on aircraft within it when he had an extraordinary event uh, but turns out in december 1979 a full year before the late cluster all of these things are, i think relevant to the story this is a full year before 1989 well, december right this is december yes. 1979 yeah this um, involves a, 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 an airman a crew chief called uh, james stewart and originally like i say he thought he just assumed that his event, when he found about the, the Rendlesham events, had occurred at the same time because it was the same time frame. But actually, after the release of the book, 
he checked his service records and said, no, I actually left in February of 1980. So hence why in front of eight, 18 separate time incidents, it's now 17, because this turns out to be a precursor case. But his story, nobody had ever heard of this. I've checked his military background, his credentials, talked to him on, on video, Skype, etc. He is working by the Eastgate of RAF Woodbridge and if you look in the map there you'll see the runway this is RAF Woodbridge and uh, there's the blue uh, to the left there you'll see one where it says UFO which is off the base but to the right you can see where he was working which is called the trim pad so he is uh -huh. working next to a hardened aircraft shelter as we would say in RAF where you where you've got a, an aircraft inside and he was working in the middle of the night on what he says is now December the 26th, 1979. And he was working outside, middle of the night, on his own, repairing one of the last three Phantoms, F-4 Phantom jets, fighter jets, that were on the base. They, were, they all had to be going because A-10s had come in en masse, and uh, there were still a few that left. So this is December the 79, and he's working underneath it, middle of the night, there is the little step ladder going up to the cockpit. It recently had a new cockpit fitted screen, and that becomes relevant. So he's working underneath, and then he feels a shudder, as if something has just jumped or, or standing or collided with the tail of the aircraft. So he comes out and doesn't see anything. And he, as he is at the bottom, he then, underneath the aircraft, he hears what is like a scratching on on uh, on glass or whatever the canopy is you know like a, akin to a claw mark sound and he's thinking what the hell is that he climbs up the little ladder to the cockpit and founds three scratches in the front cockpit of the aircraft and it was new so he knew that that was new damage he then feels a second vibration as if something has jumped from the tail of the aircraft down to the ground. There's a little judder, a vibration. And he looks down the spine of the aircraft and he sees in the moisture and the dew of the night some footprints of a kind. Doesn't recognize them, but just some kind of footprint. He doesn't see an object, but he sees, within seconds of that, he sees something scurrying through undergrowth towards the perimeter fence. And you know it's like there's always forest near to where the squadrons are and and to the perimeter. So, and you can see on that photograph that it was very close to the perimeter fence and close to what was called the East Gate. And so he sees something, doesn't see what it is, but something is scurrying through the bushes. At the same time, he then hears two shots, two discharges of firearm. And, and this is a question in itself. He knew that there was a US Air Force security police officer by the East Gate. Now, that's interesting because it's not routinely manned, but it clearly was in December 1979. And he said he hit the deck, as you would. He then hears uh, a shout of, get away, get away. Two more shots are fired from the direction of the East Gate. And then, as he gets up after that, he is looking towards a clump of trees, which you look at now where it says UFO. So if yep. you go left to that second one, where it, yeah. So this is off the base, approximately 150 meters from the east gate, so extremely close to the location. 
and there is a UFO descending vertically down into a small clump of trees. Now, what you've got to look at on this map is these are new trees. This is not how it was in 1980. In 1987, 90% of the trees at Rendlesham Forest were destroyed in what was described as a hurricane. It was a freak storm and 90% of the trees went. So this is not a fair representation. But geographically, when was that? When did that happen? 1987, seven years after the oh, event, okay. eight years after the event. So at the time, there was a clump of trees nearby. More like this maybe? or Yes, that kind of thing. And he said he, he would see a tree, uh, a UFO descending vertically and he said that the object that was scurrying through uh, away from his location where the aircraft was he said one minute it's going towards the perimeter and bushes and then it's on the other side of the bushes doesn't know how and he says that scurrying object whatever it was was moving towards the landing ufo at the same time and the second one from the east gate so if you see the long line which is a blast wall the dark line yep. that's the blast wall the east gate then in 1980 was beside the front of that so literally where you just were mm. and then yep. that's the little road and then so literally something is scurrying through the bushes towards the, the the landing ufo so you've got two objects not seen moving through bushes towards this landing ufo because of the shots fired his crew his crew supervisor who was in a vehicle then turns up and says get in he's pleased to see him he says we thought you'd been abducted you might you were the fourth or fifth or something like that hmm. it conjures up this incredible scenario that something significant was happening in december 79 now nobody had ever heard of this incident but i have no reason why this military personnel guy james stewart is going to make this up he's just a natural he's a normal family man i've checked his service records i've had video discussions with him he's a really stand-up guy i have no reason to disbelieve him why is he going to enter himself into this story and he could have just stayed quiet and thought well i'll stay in the book and whatever if he was lying but he isn't he straight away come to me and said no i've checked my service records so it has to come out from december but this incident in itself, there's no reason for this guy to make it up. And it's a sensational account of another incident prior to. Now, a lot of people in December, some of the witnesses, security police witnesses in 1980, believed that it, it's almost as if they, 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 they were waiting for UFOs to come back. And now when you look at this December case from a year earlier, maybe that gives that more credence larry warren who was the original military whistleblower had always said that by the time he got involved in his event he said it, it was like they were expecting something to arrive because there were movie cameras there so again we talk about lost evidence uh, and just before we came on air i mentioned about about evidence and missing evidence which we'll come back to two witnesses now confirm and corroborate each other larry warren it was a controversial standalone account for a long time who'd said that there'd been what was apparently another landing that they'd in a field that there'd been a security police cordon around it perhaps 10 or 15 other security police officers of which he was a part that it was being filmed on two cameras an early video camera which did exist and cinefilm that senior military personnel turn up 
senior officers, including the base commander, Colonel Williams, responsible for 12,000 personnel, all of which was denied by Colonel Williams. Colonel Holt is also believed to be there, denied it all the time. However, through the book reinvestigation, I finally got a hold of a, a key witness called Sergeant Adrian Bustinza, and he absolutely corroborates Larry Warren's account. I, it was a four and a half hour transatlantic phone call. It's one of these where I tried to use this enhanced cognitive method of interviewing. I was an advanced interviewer of suspects and witnesses in the police. And he really got into the zone and I just let him flow. And he corroborates this incident. And he said, yeah, movie cameras there, motion picture footage. So there is every reason to think that that footage existed probably still exists somewhere buried deep in the in the Indiana Jones kind of lockup somewhere, the, this vast lockup where all the best evidence goes. It may well still exist, but certainly I have reason to think that that film did, that incident took place, because he says that Colonel Williams was there. He says that Colonel Holt was there. And so they're corroborating each other almost hand in glove. What, what uh, incident is that? You mean the, the actual... This is a second landing in a farmer's okay. field. So this is not the one that everybody is familiar with. If we look at prior to the book, there are basically the consensus was that there'd been three nights of continuous UFO activity. Okay. With okay. the result of the reinvestigation in my book, I'm now looking at four consecutive nights, an extra night added. Mm. And on the second of Sergeant Adrian Bustinza's nights of involvement was this this second landing, this controversial landing, which had all been denied. The simple story for the Americans is, or anybody just listening, is that this is not one sighting. This is multiple UFO events over what is many days. We're not. We're never going to know for certain now. 42 years down the line we're never going to be able to pin people's memories down absolutely perfect now uh, but what we can do is retrieve most of the incidental information you know dates and times may be a bit hazy but what you saw what you were personally were involved in they will be ingrained into your memory so that's what i've tried to do uh, and obviously you try to work with dates as best you can but i don't think we're ever going to be able to pin everything down now now if, if you want to talk about that, about that missing piece of evidence we're saying that the video that we we know uh, uh that was taken is some interesting things that came from the book that video of this second incident was taken to a waiting fighter jet that landed at area mm -hmm. waters the guy who drove the base commander was a guy called uh, captain mike verano and he drove the base commander uh, or the, the person in charge of the twin bases, Colonel Williams, to this fighter aircraft. And he was carrying a top secret satchel. And he said, what's in the satchel? And he says, it's film of the UFO. And he's gone public with that, Captain Mike Rano, in a, in a couple of instances early on, not for a long time. If you're still alive, if you're watching this, Captain Mike Rano, please contact me and I'd love to chat. There are lots of other witnesses that I'd like to get hold of as well. But suffice to say that that was put onto a waiting jet. The jet flew, I believe, to, be, to go to Rammstein in Germany. And then from there, uh, we believe that the film ended, ended up in Washington. Well, I watched cameras go through the actions of film. And 
and I know still pictures were taken. And off the fabric of this machine thing came this bluish gold bubble that was about a foot off the ground, and it split into three. And inside that, the upper extremities of what I only can say was a non-human entity. And it was given to the F-15 that pulled, flew from Germany onto uh, Bentwaters airfield. And it was handed to the pilot, canopy closed, and the plane took off. And the reason why we think it ended up in Washington is that a lady called Ann Turner was an, an FOI, Freedom of Information, person at the Pentagon. And a US researcher called Ray Boucher had been in heavy contact with her trying to track down this film and whatever. And she eventually confided in him that uh, she'd heard pilots talking about the film of Rendlesham Forest. Uh, and yet she said, when I looked in my records at the Pentagon, there was nothing. But she'd heard pilots privately talking amongst themselves. So again, a bit of circumstantial evidence to say that that film really did exist. The thing that you're pulling up now is, again, something revealed in the book for the first time, is that at least three airmen who were involved, military witnesses, have come forward and said that routinely three of the four radio channels that were used by the security police and law enforcement were routinely recorded on audio. Now, this kind of has the echoes of me when I joined the, the, the police in 1983, because one of the things that I had to do early on in my service, if occasionally you were put in the control room, was to change audio tapes. So just three years later, and we was generally behind the US technology-wise, we were kind of doing the same thing. So when, you know, so I can identify with that. Now, one of the people who corroborated the fact that these tapes were routinely recorded was Sergeant Adrian Bustins, who'd been involved in this controversial second landing with this video filmed event now he said that he was many years afterwards sent an envelope an anonymous source that sent him three of the four audio cassette tapes of for three of the four audio channels for one of the nights he was involved now that then proves that these were routinely recorded and for a long time he had that evidence in a little like satchel or suitcase but eventually, because he was getting family pressure, it affected his life greatly. His father worked for the government. He was getting a lot of grief from his family because he was still interested in this. In a, in a fit of pique, he set fire to it in the back garden in a fire pit and destroyed it. But that doesn't negate the fact what he was telling me, which he said on Skype, was that he had received this confirmation and physically three of the four audio tapes. Nobody in terms of Colonel Holt, in terms of uh, Gordon Williams, the base commander of the Twin Bases, they have never admitted to any of this. Unfortunately, Gordon Williams uh, passed away four or five years ago now. Uh, obviously, Colonel Holt is still alive, but to date, he has denied any such admission of audio recordings. But three people have confirmed that. So there's no reason why these people are going to lie. So there clearly was a lot more evidence. And you think about all the confusion with regards to the Rendlesham incident and all the intrigue and the infighting that's occurred over many, many years, how relevant that would be to have access to those 
audio tapes and listen to them and that would certainly give us a lot more information and i think with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time no lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry in that case i pronounce you lucky Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I, I think the reason why you're never going to get those is because we we already suspect that there are more incidents that took place, but we don't have all the people coming forward. Mm-hmm. I mean, just just as an aside, there are a couple of people who were involved in what was called the Holt Night. Holt is famous, Colonel Holt is famous for writing a memorandum that was sent to the, the Ministry of Defence Vice Squadron Leader Morland, the, the, the RAF liaison officer, which was just a one-page document. And, it, and he wrote it a couple of weeks after the, the incident. And, and it's become one of the most famous UFO documents in history because he, at the time, was a Lieutenant Colonel and he admitted in that document that he'd seen multiple UFOs himself, which was very rare for somebody of his rank to ever put their name to an official document. It was on US Air Force headed notepaper. That didn't surface until around April of 1983. For a long time, the US Air Force steadfastly said, we have no documentation and nothing, yeah, we believe there was an incident, but we have no documentation whatsoever. <laughs> Basically, they lied out their teeth, but that as far as it went. And then through this document that happened to be saved, uh, which was just, a, it was never meant to be publicly released. It came out to researchers in about April, May, April, I think, in 1983. But it didn't surface in the, in, in, in the world, as it were, publicly until October of 1983 almost three years after the event when in the uk there was a big tabloid newspaper front page splash ufo lands in suffolk and it's official and they they they've got a copy of the halt memorandum and this is where it publicly became known for the first time which uh, to all intents and purposes back in 1980 then become viral the way we think of viral now, it spread quickly amongst newspapers, went around the world. And that's how the Rendlesham case really became an international well-known story. But, you know, there are so many things to this case that most people aren't aware of. What's the most surprising thing that you learned? You know, what? One of the, one of the, one of the best things, well, two, two incredible things. Uh, for many, many years, there were rumors that uh, a UFO had shone a beam down into the Arif Bentwaters nuclear storage bunkers, the weapon storage area that housed tactical nuclear weapons. Now, we never had a name, it was rumours. In fact, I'd I'd spoken to Colonel Holt and Colonel Holt had told me in a little video that I'd recorded with him in uh, 2007 when I first met him, he'd actually confirmed that uh, uh, someone in the the uh, weapon storage area tower had contacted him uh, and told him that uh, a, a beam had gone down into the uh, nuclear bunkers and that personnel on the ground, security personnel on the ground, had also witnessed it too. Now, I've always maintained that there was another witness. 
Yes, there definitely was another witness. Actually, there were many witnesses. The tower operator, I've been in contact with him recently. He initiated, actually. And then, okay, we'll come down in just a minute. Sorry. And, and he has told me, in no uncertain terms, he saw the beams of light coming down in the weapons storage area. And the crew on the ground, the security personnel on the ground, did see the beams, too. He then subsequently denied that, that he'd said that to me, which is bizarre. But when we talk about a rumour, it's good to have a name. Well, one of the people that I interviewed that came forward during my investigation was an airman called Steve Longero. And he had arrived at the base in early December and he had just been put on shift. And he has confirmed that he was walking around with an experienced airman inside the RAF Bentwater's weapon storage area when he saw a UFO, when they saw a UFO, that then shone a beam down into the nuclear weapons storage bunkers. It was like a thick beam that was scanning the whole WSA, like he was looking for something. And then proceeded to do what you can only describe, as he described, as a scan. And it went down the entire length to 300 meters of the bunkers, like doing a scan search of what is underground. What are you got under there? And I think the relevance of that is Colonel Holt had told me on a couple of occasions that there were more nuclear weapons held underground at RF Bentwaters than anywhere else in Europe. Now, it was a nuclear base, but it was the amount of ordnance. And it speculates that far more of a stockpile of nuclear weapons was hidden illegally. Hence why nobody will ever admit this, because it would be a, an international break all the armament agreement. So it's obviously a sensitive topic, the subject. But that's what he told me on a couple of occasions. One of the times was witnessed by my second wife, then second wife. So she could verbalize that and, uh, and express that herself. But the relevance of all of this is what a lot of people don't realize with the Rendlesham is why do UFOs turn up in late December 1980? And, and I think one of the key things is that at the, in late December 1980 was the world situation. The rise of the Polish shipyard workers under Lech Wałęsa in Gdansk, Poland. There was a revolution threatening to take part. They wanted democracy. But of course, Poland then was still a part of the Soviet Union. So at the time of the late December 1980 events, hundreds of thousands of Soviet troops were massing on the Polish on the Polish borders, and it looked like they were going to win and quell the rebellion, like they had done previously in Hungary and Czechoslovakia, historically wise. Uh, and the other thing that was a powder keg also taking part at the time was 52 American hostages held in Iran. The hostage crisis. So you had the powder keg of the Middle East. You had the Soviet Union threatening to destabilize another country. And so I think it was a very dangerous time, potential third world war scenario. And I think UFOs turn up on mass because they know, and I can't prove this, but they know that there are a stockpile of nuclear weapons that shouldn't be there at time of this nuclear crisis, of this potential third world war crisis. So that's my personal take as to why they turn up. But it, there are so many fascinating details. You could so be you think up. it's basically because of nuclear weapons, they're interested in the nuclear weapons here at Bentwaters. But, yes, uh, I, I, just... 
Yeah, I think there's a strong correlation. Historically, as you will know from your own UFO research, that there's a, a long history and correlation to UFOs being seen near nuclear facilities, whether it be, you know, uh, aircraft carriers, nuclear power plants, etc., going back to the 1940s. So uh, I think it's no coincidence that they turn up at a time of world crisis uh, and, and, and kind of like scan the contents and think, you know, that's not quite right. Now, I can't prove that, but, you know, there is this correlation and I think it, it kind of makes a logical reason why they turn up uh, and, and are interested. But basically, I talked to Nick Pope over a year ago now, and they had a case interested in this. Do you know Nick Pope? I guess he's also spoken a lot about this. What's your take on well, this? Nick, you know, Nick, Nick Pope is... When I said at the start that the case is, is complicated, it is. And, and part of it is complicated because three of the original witnesses have become principal researchers, namely Colonel Holt, Jim Penniston and John Burroughs, which is unusual. And they, in a sense, have controlled the way that the narrative of the case has been portrayed in, in TV documentaries, of which there's been about 50 or 60 English-speaking documentaries made by film crews all around the world over the last 40 years. And one of the persons is involved in, in controlling that narrative, and I believe that's Nick Pope, who has a, a long association with the case, going right to, to when he first surfaces in 1996, when he goes public with his, you know, he goes on BBC and says, yeah, some UFOs are definitely extraterrestrial. He's never really said it since, but he did so then, and I think he did so then to him, you know, to be accepted by the UFO community. He then becomes embedded within the US circuit, becomes very prominent as the go-to guy for all documentaries, and he has a unique position in which he can shape the way the TV documentaries are net, who what who what people are going to be involved in the cases, because and I don't know if you're aware of this, is that, that Chris, is that in t I've done lots of documentaries and the vast majority of uh, documentaries are put together. They get a budget, they, they, they put in a, a, what it's going to be about, they get a budget and then they get researchers start filling in the pieces. Well, when it comes to UFOs, because it's not mainstream, basically researchers don't have a clue. So they ring up somebody like Nick Pope and say, well, okay, you're, you're the go-to guy. Who do you want to be on the show? And he'll go, well, I think you should have Colonel Walt. I think you should have John Burroughs and blah, blah, blah. So they shape it. Any, if it was anything else, they would, they would know about it. But because UFOs is a fringe subject for all these years, and it's happened to me, they've asked me, you know, what do you think? Uh, you can shape it, and, and they have shaped it. And I think the reason why they've shaped it is because when the Holt Memorandum came out, it featured two nights of UFO activity. The first night of generally accepted UFO activity at Bentwaters Woodbridge was, was what was called the first night landing involving Sergeant Jim Penniston and Airman uh, John, John Burroughs. And basically, Jim Penniston and John Burroughs Cutting a long story short, they go off into the forest following strange lights, having got permission to go and search in the forest because it's British soil. And eventually they come to a small clearing. They come across, well, what John Jim Penniston describes as a three meter by three meter triangular craft sat at or near the ground. 
it's either hovering two or three feet or, or it's on legs now uh, he he sees it as a black small triangular craft uh three meters by three meters and two meters high at the central point it's got it feels like glass it's warm to the touch it has some lights emitting from within but there's no kind of propulsion system there's no kind of rivets or anywhere and at one point he says he finds symbols on them now uh, strangely or not so strangely john burrows who was with him was perhaps 20 30 meters away and he didn't see a black uh, triangular craft but he sees a a bank of lights that suggested that there was structure behind it which can be you know you can accept that because his geographical position is different his perspective is different and especially if the lights are bright he wouldn't be able to see the superstructure behind but the the key person is 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 sergeant jim peniston well that's he drew it he walked around it he touched it took photographs the photographs later came out fogged or that's what he was told from the base photo lot that is what was accepted as the, the first. Now, in that Holt memorandum, the first paragraph, there are only three paragraphs that Colonel Holt wrote, Lieutenant Colonel Holt at the time wrote, which was three paragraphs. And the first paragraph, it says that there was a first night landing on the 25th into the 26th of December. And then two nights later, we refer to what's called the Holt night, which is this incident which is described as the 27th into the 28th. And this is where he admits. Now, the key to the Holt memorandum is the fact that it admitted years after the US Air Force and government denying anything, that there had been two nights of UFO activity. And that was in April when it came out to researchers in 1983. So it confirmed that there'd been two nights of UFO activity. Now, interestingly, you'd think that on the strength of that memo, the Ministry of Defence, especially where it mentions a landed triangular craft, how they could then determine, as they did, that there was nothing of dissent's significance uh, is beyond me and clearly shows that the, the Ministry of Defence and subsequently questions asked in Parliament, all of which denied by subsequent governments is that they wanted to keep it under wraps they wanted to play it down yeah. because something so close to what was britain's top strike base in the event of a third world war scenario of the soviet union coming down from the lights of denmark etc they were the front strike base you know this is a fighter pilot they were there to stop that soviet aggression and so for them to have a landed craft within you know, a mile or so of the perimeter of that top strike base and say there's nothing of dissent significance. Not that they would ever, nobody's ever to this day acknowledged that the memorandum quoted an accurate craft description. Nobody will ever talk about it, even to this day. So it, it, to me, it's all part of a, a, a cover-up to downplay and hence why the title of the book, Non-Human. And I call it Non-Human, you asked me earlier, I call yeah. it non-human because the 17 incidents that are all listed there in chronological order as best you can, nobody's ever come up with a timeline like this and broke it down. Those 17 incidents, not one of them can be explained by any terrestrial aircraft, simple explanation. 
they're all anomalous objects seen sometimes they're triangular craft sometimes they're uh, balls uh, of light sometimes they're fiery balls of red glowing object the size of a beach ball i mean let me give you a i know time's running on but there's so much this book you can't really do it justice in in an hour but i want to give you one big take that came out as the result of the reinvestigation a, st a story that was covered up for 42 years by the US and the British government, right? Lieutenant Bonnie Tamplin was a shift commander. There was an incident that reported uh, a female, a spirit police officer at the East Gate at Woodbridge said she'd seen an object dropping into the forest. This is now what's regarded as the second night of consecutive, which is the 26th of December into the 27th. And she reported it. It went out over the air. Can anybody respond? There's obviously mobile patrols. And the first person to respond was the shift commander, Lieutenant Bonnie Tamplin. She happened to be just driving on a public rural road from uh, RAF Bentwaters, making her way to RAF Woodbridge by private British road, uh, public road, uh, approximately three and a half miles or two and a half miles, something like that. And basically, what happened was we knew something had happened to her because people had gone on the record and said she'd gone screaming over the radio, help, 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 uh, Bobby, 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 help, help, help. And she was screaming and she was obviously clearly traumatized. For many, many years, we didn't know what had happened to her. Well, now we do because I talked to an airman called Michael Stacy Smith, who had been there at the time. He was told urgently to open up the back gate of our Bentwaters, which is called the Butley Gate. He did so, uh, and then within seconds of him opening up the gate, three or four vehicles, US security police vehicles, left in a convoy at speed. He didn't know what was going on. Then a few minutes later, he sees Lieutenant Bonnie Tamplin as a front seat passenger being driven back into the base. The driver was Sergeant Robert Ball, who's never really gone on the record properly. He's never been questioned at length. If you're still out there, Robert, please contact me because you've got a big part of the story still to tell if we can retrieve it. Uh, and basically, he sees that uh, Lieutenant Moni Tamplin is not wearing a beret. She's disheveled. She's quivering. She's shaking. Clearly looks like she's been roughed up. And then a few minutes later, he sees a vehicle that sustained rooftop damage akin to having rolled a vehicle uh, as it's rolled onto its side and create some crumple to the the roof but it's still drivable that then comes in he's thinking what the hell's going on so he speaks with the sergeant in the control room that he was aware of that night and the sergeant who is good friend said Look, i'll tell you what happened to her if you don't ever reveal my name to anybody he made that promise he didn't reveal it to me but i have no reason to think that he's going to lie and basically the sergeant said that she was on the public road when a beach ball size object, a red beach ball size object, began to travel parallel with her to Edgerow Height, following along the Lonely Country Road. She then became so scared, as you would, that she lost control of the vehicle and ended up ditch, rolling into a ditch. The vehicle turns onto its side. She clambers out and the beach ball size object is just hovering above her. It's like waiting for her to get out of the vehicle. She gets out. She then picks up her weapon. There's some debate whether it's a, a, an M16 or a sidearm, a pistol. But she charges several rounds at it, which then makes the UFO or the object go, go away at speed. Uh, 
she then goes over the radio help 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 which then corroborates the story that we did know for many years help 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 and the first person that gets to is sergeant robert ball that then corroborates what michael stacy smith is saying is the first person witness of seeing her uh, being driven back by sergeant ball the vehicles had sustained damage so that corroborates that part of the story and that was all hidden the sergeant said all the bullets she left a weapon at the scene this is how distraught she was now, you know from being in the military you just don't do that serious <laughs> no, no. rules about yeah. uh, discharging a weapon there are real serious consequences for a negligent discharge of a weapon so though she'd fired several rounds not sure how many but it all the rounds were put back in the armory as if nothing had happened a weapon was collected put back cleaned put back in the armory and that was all covered up for 42 years now that should be a front page story it should be on the news o'clock at six o'clock news as far as i'm concerned and that shows you the level of cover-up that there has been and we didn't know that until i'd done the deep dive into the book um is 42 years of denial you mentioned 17 different cases, kind 17 of events. actual events yeah. that uh, were related so what i what i got from 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 speaking with you basically gary thanks again for your time is that Rendlesham forest is a much larger case than at least i assumed you know i yeah. i've peniston i've heard that before you know he the story he touches the craft he gets the binary code but basically everything I, that nick I, pope I, there's a chapter on nick pope there's a chapter on on jim peniston uh, I touch on the binary cords. It's a standalone account. There's nobody that corroborates it. And I don't, it's like I'm, I wake up and say, I'm Jesus reborn. It, it, it doesn't mean anything. There's no yeah. corroboration. And there's, you're not just going to accept all the data that you're going to be given. I've suggested that it, uh, it, that he should do a, a lie detector test. That would help him if he could pass that. The only person that's ever done it and passed with flying colors was the original military whistleblower, Larry Warren who was involved in this second night landing with Sergeant Adrian Stinza. All the others are not interested. They don't want to do it. There's a lot okay. of politics involved. And and you were a retired police detective, right? You mentioned in 83. Is that when you... I, I was in the Royal Air Force as a police officer. In simple terms, I was a, a corporal in the Royal Air Force Police, not a high rank. But, I, but for three of my six years in the RAF between 1983 and 1989, I worked on two nuclear weapon storage areas, which in the RAF are called supplementary storage areas, SSAs, not WSAs, as in the Americans' weapon storage area. So I, I was very familiar with guarding nuclear weapons and obviously was one of the reasons why I wanted to get involved in this case because I suspected there were many more witnesses, especially within the weapon storage area. And hence now we've got that named witness, Steve Longero, who for the first time has corroborated that a beam went down into the Bentwater storage area. So then I retired, I left after six years to join the British Transport Police in 1989. I then went on to have a 24 year career with the Transport Police. I retired early to launch my own UFO magazine, a PDF bi-monthly magazine that launched in 2013, so a natural extension. And, and, and basically for the last 19 years of my police service, I was a detective constable, not a high rank, I didn't want to go high because you get then stuck behind a desk. I like to be meeting people and my bag was interviewing. So I became an advanced interviewer of suspected witnesses. Uh, and, and unfortunately, when you talk about UFO research, it's, it's the blind leading the blind. People are not trained 
whilst there are one or two courses around the the vast majority are just willing people wanting and fascinated by the subject but there is there is not enough training there's not enough money within the organizations to to, to do proper training but but yeah i would say i was a trained investigator certainly when we look at nick pope's role uh, he'd overplayed his role he, when he was at the MOD, and I've subsequently seen in documentaries, he said he ran the UFO department. He ran nothing. He was only 24 years old when he worked at the MOD. He worked at the MOD UFO desk. It was a one-person desk, his own. He admitted in letters written during the time he was there that he only was paid for 20% of his work was UFO-related. So on an average 40 hours, he did eight hours a week. And that then becomes the, the go-to guy in the world. Not quite. He was not a trained investigator. He made a few phone calls here and there. He was basically handing correspondence of public that were reporting sightings. But the vast majority, hundreds out of the 900 that, he's, that he alleges that he received during his three years at the desk, mostly were poorly routined, routinely filled in forms with, that had no follow-up. So they were just either a letter, thank you very much, blah, blah, blah. The, the MOD don't believe there's been anything of descent significance. That was the standard line. And basically, his role is very interesting. It's a very interesting chapter where I, I think he was planted within the UFO community to shape the narrative. Okay. That's so why I, I'm the book is controversial, because, but it's told evidentially. There was no pre-publicity to the book whatsoever. Who does that when you're releasing the book? And that was done deliberately because I wanted to get the information out. If you think about the three videos that are out now, the Tic Tac Gimbal Go Fast, they were released to get it out there. Because once yep. you, the genie's out of the bottle, it's there and people can see it. And that's the approach that I took with the book, is to get the information out there. Why this design? What did, What is this? How does this relate to the, to the story? Because what a lot of people believe now is that there are portals around the earth i never used to believe this it would seem nonsense to me but i do believe that there are some strange areas and one of the areas that i think and from having done a lot of filming in the forest and during the making of the documentary there's some strange things that happened i do believe that the rendition forest is a strange place and even to this day there are strange things happening you know power outages more recent sightings strange creatures seen even now so i i i kind of think the spiral is represents something that's strange something that's shouldn't be there but it is okay well excellent thanks so much for your time gary and i mean the book it sounds awesome i will i will definitely definitely read it so i have a copy thank you for that and for everyone watching this please check out Gary's book. It sounds like there's a ton of new evidence in there, new witness testimony, and they do memory regression, all cool and, things and, added extra nights, yeah. And Chris, I just want to point out that the foreword is written by Don Smith, who's the world's leading expert on Roswell. A lot of people think that Rendlesham is the second most famous case in history after Roswell. So there is that kind of nice anecdote to Roswell. Uh, and he was, very gushing with his prayers for the book which was very humbling for me 500 pages and it's based on the actual evidence and nowhere will you see as thorough look at the evidence as what you will do there all right excellent thanks everyone for watching thanks for your time gary have a great thank rest you. of your day everyone thank you amazing interview i just went back and editing it 
There's so much packed in there. I mean, the additional night of events, the corroborating testimony that it was all filmed and sent to DC, that red orb event and the cover-up, the control of the narrative, exciting stuff. Please like and subscribe, share the video, and then get additional content at patreon.com forward slash chrislato or YouTube members. Have a great day. Peace.